25 minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Friday Erev Shabbos Isru Chag. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program.
Everyone wants to know where I wrote this niggin. In the coziest place in the world. Where there's a fire of truth burning at all times. The only place in the world that you could plug yourself in and recharge and recharge and recharge. I remember it was during Ella one night Seder. I was learning in Silver Spring. I think it was a Thursday night. And I opened up the sneakers. Oh, 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 oh,
in the AM. Good morning and welcome to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. I would bet uh, there's some folks who are traveling down from the Catskills now where they spend Shavuos to the uh, New Jersey, New York area. Uh, and they're getting ready to go to work, and then we'll be heading back later on today to enjoy Shabbos up in the mountains. Yeah. That's what I'm suspecting. <laughs> that's why, that's why I think we're getting even more use out of our Catskills radio signal than normal. It's Friday on this June 6th, day 8 in the month of Sivan. The year is 5774. Tuf and Dalit. and Zimmer, a Gesunden Zimmer. All the uh, traditional, um, greetings after Shvuas as we get set. For the summer of 2014, and we look back on what I hope was a nice, peaceful, wonderful, and joyous Yom Tov for everybody. We are back here on a Friday morning at JM and the AM, a very unusual week with that big break in the middle. And now already at an Erev Shabbos Parshas Baloscha on this Isru Chag day. It's Isru Chag here outside of Israel, and Israel, of course, Isru Chag was yesterday. Eitan Katz had Lamancha. You heard the Chevra with Nachbisa. Simcha Liner had the song Simcha. Anim Zmiro done by Shalshelas. And Regesh and Modaani opening things up as we say good morning. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Baloscha with candle lighting at 8.04 on this Erev Shabbos. 8.04, your official candle lighting time. Many synagogues begin earlier than that. Make sure you know when things start. Where you are, 63 degrees outside with 65% humidity, winds in north, 2 miles an hour, mostly sunny with a high of 80. Tonight, clear skies, low temperature 61. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, a high temperature 85 degrees. 79 right now in Yerushalayim, we're at 63 degrees here in Jersey City as we say good morning at JM and the AM. Hope your yuntav was beautiful for those of you who are just returning this morning from Israel. I'm sure you had a spectacular Shavuos, especially uh, Wednesday morning. Those of you who had the opportunity to um, to participate in services at the Western Wall, it is an amazing and incredible experience. Shavuos morning at the Kotel. I hope many people who are tuned in had the chance to do that uh, over the holiday. Uh, I know it's a very short week. Very Well, it's an unusual week. We had Monday and Tuesday, and now, of course, here Friday, at JM and the AM as we get set for another wonderful Shabbos. Uh, great programming on our stream all day long. Make sure to check out our Arab Shabbos music mix, which goes all the way until candle lighting on JM and the AM, uh, dot org. Uh, if you don't have the brand new Nahum Single Network app, make sure to install it ASAP. You don't want to be caught without that. Gives you so many amazing options of uh, what to listen to, how to listen, etc. And, um, Trying to think what else I have to remind everybody about. And coming up today, of course, it is a Friday, which means that the Malcolm Honeline will join us. We will talk about the uh, events of this week. A lot of things went on this week, even with Yuntif and all. A lot of things went on this week. We'll talk about that about 7.40 this morning. Rabbi Steve Berg is going to be joining us from the Wiesenthal Center in New York. He's scheduled for the 7 o'clock hour. And plenty more coming up between now and at 9 a.m. when we officially wrap up this uh, unusual week. Thanks for tuning in to 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org.
Ari Goldwag with Menucha Vesimcha comes off the uh, CD entitled Amechad. Yaakov Chesed had Aishas Chayel. Before that, the Aishas Chayel done by 613. Brand new Michal Przanski off of Prus Volume 4 with Chaverim. Avremo Avram Fried with Arois off of the Amachaya CD. And you heard Regesh open up that set with Aishas Chayel off their Volume Number 7. Isru Chag morning on a Friday. It's Erev Shabbos, believe it or not. Parshas Baaloscha, candle lighting at 8.04. And this is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Golly, it's in the background. News from Israel at the top of the hour. Rabbi Steve Berg of the Wiesenthal Center in New York is going to be joining us in the 7 o'clock hour. We will do our weekly update. Malcolm Holmline coming up about 7.40 this morning right here at JM in the AM. And uh, plenty more between now and 9 a.m. if you keep it right here at JM in the AM. I want to thank all our friends at uh, JEC RTMA who welcomed us on Monday to their wonderful school in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I remind you their big dinner is coming up on Tuesday night, June the 17th at the Venetian in New Jersey. You can follow them on Facebook, facebook.com slash the JEC, and on Twitter, JEC underscore Elizabeth NJ. That's how you can follow them uh, regarding uh, social media. And I do remind everybody that their, um, that their big reunion of the class of 1989 for Bruria the Breweria reunion for the class of 1989 is happening on June 29th, beginning at 6 p.m. You should be in touch with Leah Rothstein, who coordinates the alumni, at the following email address, alumni at the jec.org. And a big thank you again to everybody in Elizabeth, New Jersey, for welcoming us on Monday. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Friday era of Shabbos is next. כוכב כמו שאת הוא רוצה לידו. הוא רוצה שתאירי את גן העדן עם החיוך שלך. כתבתנו שרון פולבר מוסרת שאתמול נקברה הילדה השנייה שנהרגה באסון, קורל שרי, ועדיין לא ברור מה גרם למותן של השתיים. חברה של אור, אורי, כתב לה מכתב פרידה, ואימו הקריאה אותו היום בהלוויה. אני זוכר שהצעתי לה חברות, ועד בלי שום היסוס הסכם, היית החברה הראשונה שלי. ואני כל כך שמחתי שיש לי חברה מושלמת, כל כך חכמה ויפה, והכי חשוב אוהבת כדורגל. אני עצוב וכואב וכבר מתגעגע אליי. שרי הממשלה אישרו בשעות האחרונות במשאל טלפוני את נסיעתו של הנשיא פרס לתפילה משותפת עם אבו מאזן בוותיקן. כתבתנו אלעיל שחר מוסרת שהשר גלעד ארדן מתח ביקורת על הנסיעה, אבל הצביע בעד. מפאת כבודם של הנשיא ושל האפיפיור תמכתי בנסיעה, אולם אני סבור שהיה על הנשיא לשקול מחדש את נסיעתו לאור החבירה בין אבו מאזן לארגון הטרור והרצח של החמאס. ובטח שהוא צריך לפני התפילה 
לבטא את הסתייגותו מהחבירה הזו ולהסביר למה היא איננה מאפשרת יותר את המשא ומתן המדיני. אולי באמת רק התפילה תוכל לקדם עוד את התהליך הזה. בצרפת מציינים היום 70 שנה לפלישת בעלות הברית לנורמנדי. נשיא ארצות הברית אובמה ועמיתו הצרפתי הולנד ערכו בצהריים טקס לזכר החיילים שנהרגו. האנשים האלה נלחמו כדי שאולי נדע שלום, אמר אובמה והוסיף. הם נלחמו בתקווה שאנחנו לא נצטרך להילחם, ואנחנו מוקירים להם תודה. כתבתנו נועם דהן מוסרת שבהמשך היום יערך טקס נוסף בהשתתפות 19 מנהיגים מרחבי העולם, בהם גם נשיא רוסיה פוטין והמלכה אליזבת. המשטרה עצרה תושב קריית ים בן 28, החשוד שנהג לפתות ילדות תוך התחזות באתרי מעריצים של זמרים וכוכבי בידור. כתבנו בחיפה, קובי מנדל. הצעיר מקריית ים נהג על פי החשד לפתות נערות אשר גדשו באתרים של מפורסמים להתחזות כמעריץ, ולאחר שרכש את אמונן גרם להם לחשוף חלקים אינטימיים בגופן. חוקרי יחידת הסייבר במחוז החוף מצאו בביתו חומר פדופילי. היום הוארך מעצרו עד ליום שני, והחוקרים חושדים שמדובר במקרים נוספים שטרם נחשפו. התחזית לסוף השבוע, היום הטמפרטורות ימשיכו לרדת, ומחר בלי שינוי של ממש. אלה החדשות שעורך הדר שיפר. בצוות מאי אוסי ואופז קנטור. Jim Ma 
I know the hazards of sitting and schmoozing with Rabbi Steve Berg, and one of them is trying to conduct this radio show while still schmoozing. Uh, Rabbi Steve Berg is in our studio. He is, of course, the Eastern Director of the uh, Simon Wiesenthal Center. We will speak to him in a second. That is Avramel Avram Fried and family with a brand-new CD, a cappella style, entitled My Zadis Miros. That one was called Menucha Simcha, and Yehuda Katz just did an amazing, had, an, had really an incredible release of three selections uh, that was one of them out of Israel, Eilecha, the great Kalbach song. Released it as a single, and um, uh, that's how we opened up the 7 o'clock hour after our news from Israel. It's Isru Chag morning on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Baalosho weekly update coming on later on. We get a chance this morning, however, to uh, speak to Rabbi Steve Berg, who is the uh, East Coast Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center, has been in that position now for how long? A year and a half. A year and a half already. My gosh. Time flies. Does time fly? It certainly does. And I say good morning and welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning. How are you? Thanks for uh, having me here. Everything is wonderful, and it's great to have you here. I consider you a wonderful friend of this program and of the Nachum Siegel Network, and it's great to welcome you here this morning. You know, you have really a unique 
position in this world. Because uh, one thing we know is, unfortunately, intolerance is not going away. It's a battle that's going to be fought till the end of time. You'd have to agree with that, right? Yeah, of course. In a lot of ways, I think your job is a lot different than it would have been, let's say, 20 years ago. I think conditions, atmosphere, I don't know what's going on in, in the New York area, in the United States in general, I think it's very different than it used to be. Some may argue better, some may argue worse, but I think it's different. And on top of that, the the political situation is one of such uncertainty. You're witnessing now what's going on in Europe, for instance, and we don't know what to think of it. We don't know, you know, is it is it good to see nationalistic parties, you know, um, fighting for their own causes and independence? Uh, is it a bad thing, as we always say, good for the Jews, bad for the Jews, a good thing or bad thing? It's a very complicated world out there that you're that you're that you're uh, working in. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yes, I would agree. It's a very complicated world, <laughs> and uh, I would uh, say that w- what's going on in Europe is definitely bad uh, in every way, shape, or form uh, for everyone, really. And uh, I think, you know, you mentioned before, and I think you're correct in terms of the world changing the last 20 years. Right. I, I think that hate and intolerance is pretty much the same that it's been for thousands of years. The only difference is because of the Internet and the interconnectivity of the world. Um, people get it very quickly. People know what's going on. Uh, and for good and for bad, you know, people uh, in Nigeria, for example, people knew about these girls and they were able to try and rally around whether right. it's successful or not. It's a whole different conversation. Uh, but the flip side is the amount of hate on the Internet today, the amount of anti-Semitism on the Internet today, uh, the amount of bigotry on the Internet today is is just beyond anyone's scope or imagination. So if I were to argue that today, in 2014, uh, the efforts that are made, the anti-bullying efforts, you know, intolerance being, you know, dealt with on, on a much smaller scale than international, but starting with that, with anti- which you're involved with, right, anti-bullying and all that, sure. uh, anti-bullying campaigns and... Uh, and how unacceptable it is today, even though some may call it political correctness, but how unacceptable it is today to use certain terms or to lash out, you know, at people in a certain way. And the efforts that are made, you know, to make people aware of this. I mean, it's funny how in that area, I think we're much better and making so much progress. And yet you say that in so many other areas, things are worse than ever or more, you know, filled with hate than ever. I think people are definitely more sensitive uh, to many things out there, but you know what we're looking at every single day is the, the power of cyberbullying. Uh, whereas in in the past, you know, I tell us to people all the time when they went to school, they would get out of school four or five o'clock. You know, you could be bullied, but at least you were able to go home, take a deep breath, and give your mom a hug. Uh, today, you know, so because of cyberbullying, it's a twenty-four hour cycle, and people are being tortured. And uh, because of the internet, it's created this anonymity. You know, where people don't really, you know, have to look you in the face and say something to you. They can totally hide behind an alias or hide behind the Internet. Um, so in certain ways, while people publicly are more PC, um, they're much more vicious in an anonymous way. Wow. Rabbi Steve Berg is here. Um, the, I'm looking at some of the notes that I uh, was sent in advance of this conversation. And uh, at the Museum of Tolerance in New York City, which is on 42nd Street, for those who have never seen it, it's at 42nd and 2nd in New York City. 
You're primarily dealing with teens and with law enforcement agencies. Those are two interesting groups, aren't they? Two interesting <laughs> groups. Those are the largest groups we deal with. Uh, in terms of, as adolescents, we do uh, we have a huge uh, cyberbullying, anti-bullying program that we we do. We do work hand in hand with the New York uh, City Public Schools, uh, many many schools, to try and, and help them out with that. Uh, but we also do sensitivity training, tolerance training for law enforcement. You know, I get questions all the time, like why are we in that business? And I always point out that if it wasn't for the Gestapo, the Holocaust probably wouldn't have happen, meaning law enforcement really is out there day after day after day, dealing with society, keeping society the way it is, and it's not an easy job, and we work hand-in-hand with the FDNY, with NYPD, with Department of Corrections, all those areas to try and give them um, the tools to really work with the public. Uh, You must have had uh, some episodes or incidents or situations where law enforcement officials, maybe, maybe some rookies on the job or others, just didn't know, just didn't understand, you know how difficult it is sometimes to be unique, you know, in society, to to be Jewish when most others aren't, or to stand out in a certain way. And I guess those types of courses and training would be very helpful. Look, you know, I I think the the important thing to remember with law enforcement is they're people. And, and everyone comes in with their biases and, and the things that they grew up with. And, and you have to kind of help them work through that to take a look at something and say, okay, I don't want to judge that person. I want to look at this situation because we all bring it. You know, we have a, when we start our tours, right in the beginning, we have a game we call the Seven Eleven game. Okay, there's a study that says in the first seven seconds you meet someone, you make 11 assumptions about them. Now, that's just what we do because we're human beings. And what you need to te- teach people is, you know, yes, you make those assumptions, but many of them are probably wrong. And, and you have to kind of teach people to work through that, whether it be with, with Jews or African Americans or Hispanics or anyone. Um, and that's really what we, you know, that's why, you know, we, we call it Museum of Tolerance. And people, I get it all the time, like, we shouldn't just be tolerant. We should be welcoming to people. Mm. And, and, you know, Museum and of I, friendliness. Yeah, and I always say, you know, I go, look, halavai, we can all be tolerant of each other. You know, if we get to the point where we can really tolerate each other. Then it'll and, work out. Then it'll work out uh, pretty good. Everybody, <laughs> Steve Berg is here. What do you think when you heard about this uh, shooting in Brussels and the lives that were taken by this madman there? I mean, it's traffic, tragic. There are two teenage orphans, you know, now in Israel as, as a result. But you know, something that people kind of missed in this whole thing was in Brussels that same weekend when the tr- when that happened. You know, there, there were the European Union elections, right? And you alluded it before the nationalistic, right wing, anti Semitic, and and. Uh, you know, anti-immigration uh, parties. Uh, they won unprecedented, unprecedented. And there was the f- the party in France. They came in number one. Right. That was Le Pen's party. You know, the big anti-Semite all the years. Now his daughter's in charge. Right. They're still anti-Semitic. In Brussels that weekend, she started to put together a right-wing coalition, so that they can have play a bigger role in the European Union and basically messing up Europe. And uh, that is incredibly scary. I mean, it's really scary. You're talking about in, in France. Just to give you an idea. Her party came in number one. The president of France, his party came in third in these elections. There's a chance that this woman, right, this daughter of, of an anti-Semite who denied the Holocaust, right, that this woman could become the president of France. That's what's going on in Europe. So Brussels in and of itself is, is incredibly tragic and it's horrific, but it's part of a much bigger picture. And then if you throw in there the fact that the killer, you know, spent time in Syria, then you realize how, you know, whether Afghanistan or Syria, you have all these angry people coming out there. And frankly, they don't like us very much. And that's that's dangerous for the Jews of Europe and the Jews of the world. The European elections. Why now? Why wasn't why, why didn't we see elections, you know, like this with results like this? I don't know, 10 years ago or any other time. Well, I think you're seeing a large backlash because of uh, what happened in 2008 with a lot of these countries 
practically going bankrupt, having all kind of financial issues. And now the, the right-wing nationalistic people are saying, see, we told you this is no good to have one currency for everyone. You know, why are we bailing these guys out? Why are we bailing those guys out? Right. And there's a lot of resentment. And you know that right-wing people, they always build off this. This is what Hitler did, you know, when he came to power after World War One, and Germany had, you know, horrific uh, economic uh, sanctions and they had difficulty. He came up and said, enough of this. We've got to build up. So you're seeing the same type of stuff right now go on. And we haven't even begun to start to talk about Russia in terms of what Putin's going to do, right. who, who is not an anti-Semite, but it's, it will complicate Europe. Um, it's funny because the EU, or the formation of the EU, could end up playing a very big role in attitude toward Jews in Europe. Because if the pendulum swung all the way to the point where there was a European Union that was formed, it may just swing completely the other way, as you just described. Look, I think we're torn. You know, for many Jews, they look at the EU and they look at the issues regarding Israel and, and they feel that the EU is on the wrong side of the Israeli issue with the Palestinians and all those things, which, by the way, is probably true. Right. But you have to look at what's going to replace them. And these folks that are going to replace them, you know, forget that, the nuances of the U.N. and all those things. These are people that don't like us and, and, and think, you know, it, it's... They just don't like anyone that's not like them. I, I hate to say it. And uh, it's, it's going to have tremendous ramifications. And, and I said Putin is hanging out there. Putin's not done. You know, he went to Ukraine. He took, he took, he went back. He, he's going to go someplace else. You know, and let's say he goes after Latvia. You know, Ukraine was not part of NATO, right? right. What happens when he goes after a NATO country? Does, does England and France jump in there? I mean, Europe is, is literally, there's gasoline poured over it. And, and I think everyone should be terrified of that match dropping. Oh boy, Herbert Steve Berg is here. Uh, ex- uh, the um, give me your title one more time. Eastern Director of Simon Wiesenthal. Thank Center. you, the Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center in New York City. You've had quite a relationship with some of the uh, government officials of New York, including the current New York City Council Speaker. Why has that relationship worked so well? Well, it's it's been great. I would say in the last 12 months, we've had over half the city councils come down for tours of our museum. Uh, the speaker, Melissa Mark Viverito, so she, she's she been down three, four times. I actually have to tell you that. I, I give these VIP tours all the time, and I can tell you when someone's engaged or not. Uh, the, she came the first time. We probably spent almost three hours together. And, you know, I have I try and get them through as quickly as possible. She kept stopping me. And, um, you know, we have a violence against women piece. We have a genocide piece. And, you know, we spent a, a lot of time together. And I think that for a lot of these city council people, what drove them to office are these types of issues. Now, they get caught up in so many other things. But when they sit in a place like the Museum of Tolerance, they kind of remember why they got into politics. And it's been very, very special. Interesting. And yeah. in New York especially, people of such diverse backgrounds, yet many of them have this in common, as you yeah. just said. They went into politics. And, and this and this week you're being honored by a city councilman, Matthew Eugene. Yeah, great, great fellow. He's the only Haitian uh, American in, in the council. And how did this relationship start? Well, he is uh, he's very focused on youth issues. He's the chair of, of youth programs for the city council. Um, and we've done a lot of work um, with the city council in terms of getting more public school youth into our museum, especially from Title I schools, uh, places where kids may be from a low, lower socioeconomic background. Um, and he's just been fantastic. We've had this great relationship um, in trying to basically inspire children. Amazing. And you, as an Orthodox rabbi, have been recognized and will be the ge- and was the guest speaker at the NAACP event in Manhattan. I don't know. Some might find that unusual, but you have established a tremendous relationship with the organization. I, I, it's been one of one of the best relationships that, that I've had in over I'd say over the course of the last year, year and a half. Um, you know, it's very interesting. I spoke uh, at, and I mentioned before, for Black History Month, right. at the NAACP for them. Right. And, you know, I started... 
by talking about, I have a very good friend, Jared Bernstein, who was the White House Jew, uh, sure. Jewish liaison, and he attended President Obama's Seder. You know, President Obama does a Seder every year, and he told me the most powerful moment was when the president picked up literally the original Emancipation Proclamation and read from it at the Seder. And I talked about how, you know, in terms of slavery, you know, we have that history, they have that history, and there's common bonds. And I'll tell you something interesting. At the end, um, what the vice president of the chapter, he asked me, he said, let me, I just want to understand, during the civil rights movement, the Jews and the African-Americans were so tight and so close and worked so hard. He said, what happened? And there is this realization that our communities have drifted apart. And I think that it's to everyone's benefit to try and get back together on important issues that we can work together on. Well, what was it like working with both President Bush and President Clinton recently? Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, it was interesting because uh, we had them at an event, um, and they were great. I mean, they're actually quite friendly. I mean, I guess once you get out of office, you know, it, cha- it changes a <laughs> once lot. Once you're a past president. Yeah, past president. <laughs> but I'll tell you something that, that hit me at, at that exchange. Um, you know, they, they were interviewed what their time was like, and they asked President Clinton, um, you know, any regrets, you know, having, uh, you know, been out of office. And he said his one major regret uh, was Rwanda. He said, you know, 800,000 people were butchered in, in three months. He said, he said, we couldn't have saved 800,000. He said, but we could have saved 300,000 if, if we had acted. And that, you know, for me, my, one of my passions now is genocide and, and, and talking about that issue and dealing with that issue and, you know, and, and realizing how in the world, you know, we talk about genocide as a crime, but we're not really sure what to do when it happens. Perfect example, as I mentioned before, these girls in Nigeria. Right. Everyone feels horrible. No one knows what to do. And uh, so that was, to me, one of the most powerful moments is hearing, and I give him a lot of credit that he can say that, but the flip side is to see that, you know, 300,000 people could have been saved. It, I mean, how does that not break your heart? Is Rwanda the only area of the world that is suffering from genocidal numbers like this or has suffered over the last couple of decades of numbers like this? Are there many places like that, yet Rwanda is one that American officials have focused on for a long time? You know, there, there's there's many places. You know, Sudan, Darfur. You know, it gets talked about. It depends what's going on. It goes back and forth, back and forth. You know, the uh, the president of Sudan has been indicted by the International Criminal Court for genocide. Right. And I when I speak to kids all the time, I said, "Where do you think he is now? He's in the presidential palace because there's not much you can do other than just say this is a really bad man." And, um, you know, the genocide started because there was a Jew named Raphael Lemkin that came out of the Holocaust, and he said, "You know, if if I kill one person, that's a crime." But if I kill a million people in my own country and it's sanctioned by the country, that's not a crime. How can that be? So he fought in the U.N. and he made it a crime against humanity. It's the only one. There's a crime against humanity. But, and Samantha Power, the, U, the ambassador to the U.N., she wrote a book on this, basically said, but not much can be done about it. And, and, and I have to tell you, the one thing I've been talking about a lot, and, and I gave this speech, Chalamoy Pesach, right, when, when everyone was freaking out about the Ukrainian leaflets. Right. trying, to, And I said, um, I said, look, the genocide, the, the UN, America, there's very little they can do. I said, but the one thing that we have as Jews is the state of Israel. So if something happens, the Jews start getting shot anywhere around the world, you know they'll be there. Literally, within two weeks of that talk, the mayor in Ukraine got shot in the back when he was jogging. And I tell people all the time I speak to them, I said, what do you think happened to him? They're like, oh, I heard something about that. And I said, I'll tell you what happened. The state of Israel picked him up, brought right. him to a hospital, and now he's recuperating in Israel. Unbelievable. Rabbi Steve Berg is here. One of your talks is why is it easier, why it is easier to be convicted of jaywalking than genocide. I assume this is a, an exposition on what you just mentioned. This is exactly, yeah, this is exactly it. It's, uh, it's just, it's tragic. If something, I tell kids when I speak all the time, I said, next 10, 15 years, genocide will happen somewhere in the world. We just don't know where yet. Take North Korea, for example. Mm-hmm. The UN basically came out in the last six months with a report that North Korea has internment camps where they gas people to kill them. 
Okay, as Sound Jews. Familiar? Yeah. As Jews, how do you not get chills when you hear something like that, right? And so we know this guy's a despot. We know he's terrible. We know he has some kind of nuclear, you know, something going on there, right? And you have, he's gassing people. And what can we do? And what can we do? So what's your role then? What is the Simon Wiesenthal family, and I don't mean, uh, you know, uh, relative family, you know what I'm talking about. What is their role in all this? Do you get involved politically in these countries? Do you... Uh, uh, do, you, do you officially warn people about what's going on in Europe? Like, what role can you play as an organization in all the things you just described? Well, we're very strong internationally. We have uh, an office in Paris. Uh, we're very, very active in Europe with what's going on. You know, we even still employ a Nazi hunter who is out there. In the last six months, there have been a group of guards from Auschwitz and a group of guards from, from Medonic that have been basically arrested uh, because we helped to get some of the laws changed in Germany. Um, you know, we're out there, you know, basically, as I call it, screaming and yelling about everything going on and trying to, to, to for people to realize, you know, how disastrous this European election, uh, Union election was. Do these parties in Europe know that they're we Wiesenthal offices in Europe? Oh, yeah. They're uh, aware of it. Oh, they're not fans of ours. No, they're not. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can imagine. But just no. knowing that it exists sometimes no, they, helps. Yeah, but that's, that's, so what do we do? We pressure the quote-unquote good guys. We pressure the more moderate politicians saying you have to speak out loud and clear that this is you know, this is unacceptable. And that's we, we spent a lot of our time doing that. And we spent a lot of time in Asia. Uh, Rabbi Cooper is constantly in Asia talking to, to the folks out there in Japan and other places saying, you have to play a role here also. You know, the world has to play a role. You can't, the world just can't watch this happen and, and stay silent, which is frankly what the world's always done. Is this what Simon Wiesenthal wanted when he left the war? He had this broad vision that a, a Jewish person has to take a leadership role and just wake up the world to what goes on? On a regular basis on this globe? For sure he did. You know, his approach was that uh, he went after the Nazi war criminals. He always said it was never about revenge. It was always about justice right. because they needed to know that if you touch the hair on a Jew's head that there are repercussions to that. And people need to know that, that you can't go out there. That's exactly what I'm talking about, genocide. You know, in general, people need to know that there are repercussions, that you can't just go kill people and destroy lives and then walk away, you know, scot-free. And that's what the world has to, to realize. What's the progress on the Museum of Tolerance in the city of Jerusalem? Ah, oh, very exciting. Um, Is there progress? There's, yeah, we finished the foundation. We're starting to go up. We're starting to go up. We're uh, raising the rest of the money. I mean, it, and, and thank God. We just, um, we've gotten a number of things named recently. Um, and it's, it's going to be, I think it's going to be the crown jewel of Jerusalem. You know, you're going to have all the major conferences. And, and what our role is at the, the Museum of Tolerance Jerusalem, we want human rights conferences to be there. We want people to see Jerusalem as a place that not everyone's trying to figure out, oh, is it occupied? Is it not occupied? And by the way, kudos to Australia. They came out and, and said they would no longer call it occupied. Right. Um, but it's the type of place that you come to talk about uh, all these things that we're talking about here, human rights, and, and, and we're going to have major conferences there, and it's going to be just incredible. It'll be interesting to see which countries boycott a conference in Jerusalem on human rights and which ones, of course, are open to the idea. Yeah, we actually just went through a boycott. We're, we're opening, um, literally next week, we're opening in uh, UNESCO in, yeah. in Paris. We have a display when, when the Palestinians uh, joined UNESCO. We said, you know, that's not fair. You've got to do something for us. And we pushed UNESCO to do um, – uh, we're, we're doing a display on the 3,000-year connection between the Jews and Israel. Because wow. we want to say that we, we've been there for a long time. So it was supposed to come out about six months ago. And literally, we were installing it in UNESCO, and the Arab League blew a gut. And then they said, sorry, we can't do it anymore. Uh, we got America, Canada, a bunch of different countries to pressure. And now it's back on. And I mean, we'll see next week if it happens. 
happens. And this takes place where? At UNESCO headquarters. Where is that? Uh, that is in Paris. Uh, in Paris. And eventually it will be here in New York. But first, UNESCO is where a lot of these fights in terms of Israel and Palestinians are happening. So we thought it was very important for people to understand that we're not Johnny-come-lately in 1948 popping into Israel. That We've been there for thousands of years, and uh, you know the world just has to accept that. That, must, that might be the most important point to argue. Is yeah. that our connection to Israel and to Jerusalem, of course, is thousands of years old and not something that was just created or uh, conveniently uh, arranged in recent times. Uh, Rabbi Steve Berg is here. He's Eastern Director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. I guess we should point out to, um, I don't know, principals or uh, leaders of organizations who think they might benefit from a get-together at your museum, at your uh, uh, exhibits in New York City. How do they uh, get in touch with you? Well, they can just uh, email me. Simple. It's S-B-U-R-G, S-Berg at Wiesenthal.com. That's the easiest way. Uh, but it, it's really one of the most unique locations anywhere in terms of the diverse stuff that we deal with, in terms of, uh, of Jewish background, civil rights, um, genocide, violence. There's just so many different things there that, that anyone that comes here will find it incredibly educational. And we do a lot of evening events for all kinds of organizations that come down there. We're down the block from the U.N. because we're an NGO. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing place. And we should point out that school that are looking for a, um, a comprehensive anti-bullying uh, session, you know, where they where you could really open up the eyes of the students. I mean, I'm sure you've seen, you know, kids react like, oh my gosh, I never realized that doing that, you know, could have such repercussions. Uh, they should contact you for that. Yeah, absolutely. We start out, there's a whole area there, power of words, and we go to power of images. And, you know, I tell people all the time that Hitler and Stalin were just big bullies. It's the same type of behavior. And therefore, it's much more comprehensive to understand the bigger picture. It's a, it's, it's a funny way to say it, but it's rather accurate, yep. you know? Yeah. People say madmen, you know, genocidal killers. Yeah, it may end up that way, but they start. As being neighborhood bullies, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they start bullies, and, and you look at all that behavior. It's just, it's bullying behavior, and the world's got to not tolerate it. Unbelievable. All right, everybody, Steve Berg invites you at the sberg at wiesenthal.org. Com. Dot com, at wiesenthal.com, uh, to be in touch and to arrange for a visit for your students and family to the uh, Museum of Tolerance, uh, New York City, which is on 42nd Street. And uh, we had a comprehensive review, to say the least, of what's happening at the Wiesenthal Center this morning with all these amazing projects that are going on both locally and, of course, internationally as well. And we should mention that Devorah Berg has a big bat mitzvah celebration this coming Sunday. That's right. Very I hope you'll convey household. Mazel Tov wishes. I absolutely will. And it's great seeing you. Thank you for all your support and for being a great friend of uh, of what we do here and uh, continued success. Always. And can I mention one last thing? Please. I'd like to wish Y&J is graduating on Sunday and my son Ellie as well. So I wish everyone from Y&J a mazel tov on the graduation. Y&J, big shout out to you. Enjoy graduation, eighth graders, and uh, continued success in all your future endeavors, uh, to say the least. Friday morning broadcast on this era of Shabbos by Steve Berg from the Wiesenthal Center in New York City, he is the Eastern Director of the uh, internationally known Wiesenthal Center. We thank him for stopping by and uh, updating us on everything that's going on with his remarkable organization on a Friday morning right here at JM in the AM.
J.M. and the A.M. David Gabay with that uh, Bore Olam single here at J.M. and the A.M. Weekly update in a moment, I know. Strange week, huh? We specialize in strange weeks. <laughs> no people have strange weeks like we do, I can tell you that much. Uh, strange week in terms of being off Wednesday and Thursday for Yuntif. Back here today with the weekly update. Malcolm Holmline coming up in a moment. Rabbi Yudin, of course, will join us. It's Erev Shabbos Parshas Baaloscha. Candle lighting at 8.04. 8.04 on this Erev Shabbos. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. Big thank you to our friends at JewishWorldReview.com who continue to enthusiastically encourage their readers to check out our live stream at jmnam.org. It is a live stream filled with amazing programming, including today, where you'll have a uh, an incredible array of Erev Shabbos music selections all day long on the stream at jmandam.org, so check it out. And uh, those of you who want a uh, comprehensive look at so many different things that are happening in this amazing world of ours, you can check out jewishworldview.com. They provide an amazing array of articles, commentary, etc., on what's happening in this uh, in this world. Check it out today and enjoy. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us for the uh, weekly update here on a Friday morning broadcast. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning. It seems like we were just here. <laughs> Hope you had a wonderful Yantif. Yes, Nothing like the unity of the holiday of Shavuos, huh? Hopefully appreciated by all. Oh, I hope so. Uh, so much has gone on. I feel somewhat prophetic. I uh, I don't know if it was last Friday or the Friday before that. I said something, you'll recall, about the quiet times. How all of a sudden, when the Secretary of State of the U.S. is out of the headlines, and we don't hear much about what's going on in terms of the peace talks, uh, that always seems to be a dangerous time to me. We know what happened back in 1993 when all of a sudden the Oslo Accords and all the secret meetings came to light. It shocked a lot of people. Well, now we are shocked that uh, both the United States and the European Union are accepting the Fatah Hamas government, what I guess most people would refer to as the PA. Malcolm, you know that the Israeli government has reacted quite angrily to this acceptance and the speed with which they accepted it. What could you tell us about the American attitude now, Washington's attitude toward the Palestinian Authority? Well, this is a very complicated uh, matter, so just a few words of background as well about what really is at stake in this decision and how it ties into the visit of Secretary Kerry to Lebanon, where he announced another half billion dollars in aid when Hezbollah is a part of that government. So the law that Congress passed and that the President signed and passed that uh, establishes we will not fund any terrorist entity or any government with a terrorist entity into it is being compromised and has been compromised. And we're seeing it now in regard to this uh, fiction that's been created of a technocrat government um, and the rush to, to recognize, had they simply said that they will deal with the government and watch them and then decide on aid, I think Israel's reaction would have been much more muted. The fact that they put the priority on giving the aid, uh, announcing the aid, obviously Congress is preparing to move against it. Kay Granger, the chairman of the Appropriations uh, Subcommittee, 
Uh, others, Nita Lowy, who's a key member of that, key Democratic member, have expressed their uh, reservations, their opposition, their uh, uh, concerns about it, as have many other members on both sides. And the question is whether they'll come to a full showdown or will something else be worked out that would enable them to somehow continue uh, to provide some sort of assistance. Now, the, uh, we have to remember Hamas has announced they will not give up their weapons. They have 20,000 trained military uh, personnel and security personnel. They have uh, a huge infrastructure of, of uh, missiles and other weapons, advanced weapons, which they say will, they will not put under the control of the PA, and that their uh, brigades, the um, Al-Qassam brigades, will continue to be, they called it a powerful resistance, meaning that they will continue their activities from Gaza in addition to having Islamic Jihad and other groups that have been allowed to flourish. Uh, they have maybe five, 6,000 members. There are thousands in some of the other groups. And Hamas is ex- uh, exploiting this deal not as a means to put Gaza under the PA's control and under Fatah control, as was asserted, but in fact for them to be able to operate now out of the West Bank and, and Hamas activities are going largely unchecked by PA security which used to close them down. They did arrest five Hamas guys last night in, in raids for, for their activities. So despite this uh, seeming uh, marriage, uh, there's still a lot of tensions and uh, clear uh, disputes, like 70,000 people were paid by Fatah in Gaza for the last seven years for not working. These were their employees in Gaza, 70,000. Guess who paid that bill? <laughs> 40,000 Hamas guys now who are out of work because the Hamas structure was closed down and put under the PA are now demanding that they get paid. So you're talking about 110,000 people being paid for doing nothing. Yeah, but I don't... of them are working. Yeah, but I don't blame Hamas for any of them. I'm not putting blame. I'm just telling you what, what the issues, how complicated no i understand but that's what makes people it's... have have glossed over the significance right of of what they're doing now in the refugee camps what they're doing in other areas well that's what makes this whole thing so hard to believe it's and the, and the speed with which it was but done people, so hard to believe but people the way the press largely has expressed this has talked about this has put the onus on israel right or for rejecting what no U.S. government, I think, would have accepted or, or, or would, have, in principle, have accepted in the past. But how could Israel not be in that position and, when Washington has taken this direction? Well, no, Israel of, has to do because Israel makes a decision, not because of what America does. Israel's reaction to America is uh, is significant because of the points of these points. No, I agree, but Israel is in a, is in a situation where if the United States takes this position, of course they're going to look like the bad guys. They're going to look like they're not going along and not cooperating with American, you know, the new American policy. They're in a terrible position, Israel. Well, they don't have to look at if if uh, if the media were objective, they would they would be presenting the facts, you know, that the US it came out now it has been holding secret cha- back channel talks with Hamas for the last 6 months. This, according to American and Palestinian officials, even though the State Department spokeswoman said that there were there were no such back channels, but the people who, who were supposedly eyewitnesses to it are, are uh, saying that this has uh, been going on. And the, the uh, another point where the hypocrisy becomes clear is Abbas in, and in the quartet uh, principles they accept a demilitarized Palestinian state. 
But Gaza is not demilitarized, right. and that's not going to change. So already we violated even the, the fundamental uh, requirements that the United States and the West have put. And by the way, it's not just the U.S., it's all the Europeans and everybody right. else as well. That's why, that's why the media follows, because they see the, uh, the all-powerful U.S. and the European countries, experts in this area of how to deal with terrorists and at what point to negotiate and when not to and things like that. They're going ahead and recognizing this new PA government. And the U.S. then comes back and says, well, Israel transferred uh, money. The tra- the right. Um, they kept the payments going right. on last Sunday right. uh, to the to the PA. So if they transfer right. money, why can't we? And we will now watch it. The answer is that Israel had an obligation. That was money that had been committed before, and it goes to pay. Much of it goes also. They take money for the debts that owed to Israel Electric and other things. But uh, you know, they 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 look for any out to try and. Shift the onus back to Israel, and the uh, now the question the fight will be over U.S. aid, and uh, and the question that Palestinians are saying now that the unity is a prerequisite to a peace process, but how can you have the peace process because Hamas will will remain armed and will always be uh, refused to to give up its goal of eradicating Israel. You gotta who's behind this? And I know that sometimes this puts you in an uncomfortable position, but so many people are so curious. Is it Obama, the president? Is it Kerry? Is it somebody else? Is it prominent members of Congress? Who is behind this move to recognize this brand-new PA this quickly? Well, I mean, I wasn't in on the discussions, but I would have to say that no decision of this magnitude goes without White House approval, uh, and I assume the president's involvement, but I don't know that. Uh, and certainly Secretary Kerry uh, was involved because the announcement was made by the State Department, not by the White House. And and the, one of the explanations, I think, that need to be demanded is that Hamas is is Iran. It's their front. Yep. Um, and Hezbollah is... And the U.S. has said that, by the way. The U.S. has acknowledged that, has that they're a proxy of Iran. And here Iran was pulling back because they were angry at them about their role in Syria, so their economic conditions were near collapse. And and what you're doing is giving them a new lifeline Right to the and and in addition, giving Hamas the link into the into Yudon Shimon and those other areas, uh, and the the reconciliations between Hamas and Iran have been uh, resurgent over the last uh, year, the last months uh, since the the very shaky thing. So why are we giving them an additional thing as as in Lebanon, where Hezbollah? I don't know if you saw the announcement that they they're creating a Hezbollah in Syria. And, and Secretary Kerry goes there to congratulate the new prime minister, which is okay, but then to announce Aden to, to treat that government. And this is the model for Hamas. They say we will Hezbollah ourselves. We will follow the model of right. Lebanon, where you right. can have an, a terrorist organization retain its militia, it will retain its, its forces, be part of a, of a recognized government that the United States provides support to. And the Hamas says, now we'll do the same. So we're not in the government, theoretically. Uh, or ostensibly, but in fact are an integral part of it. Great point. Great point. It's all in the it's all in the costume. It's all in the proper dressing up, and they'll 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 dress up like an organization that the U.S. has already been dealing with. And, and they're saying bullets and ballots will gain them the foothold now. Bullets and ballots, so that they are you know moving in the same direction. And we've seen this in the past. Uh, I think that the divisions will will. Uh, come more and more forward. I think that you will see more problems, uh, especially if aid is, is held up. 
but even if not, I think just the, the, the interests of the two parties are, if they are being honest, are inimical. We don't know whether Abbas at age 79 is ready for another confrontation where he will, will come down. And this, because the Egyptians have been so touched on Hamas, they were looking for this lifeline. And all of a sudden, they get it, and in a way, that takes all the onuses off them, all the burdens of the economic debt, the other things that they had, and the poor uh, political, geopolitical position they were in, and now links them into the middle of, of, uh, of the West Bank. How blindsided was Prime Minister Netanyahu on all this? Look, there were discussions and uh, that had gone on, but I think... Um, uh, that on the on the, that his understanding, even as late as Sunday, from comments he made in discussions we had uh, with various people in Israel, was that the U.S. would not rush to recognize and certainly not rush to aid. That they would say we can work with them. We'll see. We'll, we'll wait uh, on aid uh, on and continue foreign aid till we see how they deliver. And I think on that side he was blindsided uh, or not not uh, given a, a heads up as to exactly what was going to be told although some US officials say in fact that they were made aware of uh, of what the announcement was going to be so the only thing you could figure is that somehow secretary of state Kerry convinced Washington that there's some peace opportunity that's going to fade away if they don't go ahead and and uh, proceed with this recognition well there is a uh, no I, I don't think he did it on the basis of uh, of peace I think he, he did it on the basis that if no aid goes forward to the PA and the PA collapses, then the burden falls on Israel. Mm. Not only will you have a rise of violence and an end of the security cooperation, which, by the way, continues throughout this period, right. uh, but also Israel, in, on, as many say under international law, would be obligated to do it. Others say that it's not, but that they would pe- have to pick up the pieces you know, to sustain or that it would not be in their interest to see a collapse, I think, it, something Israelis would say, too, and have uh, have uh, complete chaos there. It's very it's always hard to predict, but the next couple of weeks are going to be really hard to predict, right? Is Secretary of State Kerry going to make an effort to try to get everybody back to a table? Is Israel going to be very stubborn in terms of trying to acquiesce to any of this because of what just happened? Look, Israel can't at this point sit down and, and talk to, to this uh, new government, not after the positions that it's taken, nor would they. Uh, I think uh, in, in, under any of the circumstances I could think of. So we'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, you know, Israel announced that they're going to build some more. I'm not sure that it's smart to make that a punishment, but uh, I think that uh, the announcement was made to and to catch everybody's attention, which it did, and everybody's condemnation, uh, which I'm sure will be debated about how wise the timing or what, what they do. Uh, but Israel has limited things that they can do. They don't want to stop security cooperation because that hurts Israel. And Israel is still responsible for all the, uh, a lot of the security, um, the major security operations in uh, Judea and Samaria and in West Bank are made by Israeli troops mm-hmm. uh, because uh, Hamas didn't want to and they didn't want to go after Hezbollah, uh, uh, Hamas uh, people directly. So the, uh, the PA let Israel Essentially, take the lead on some of these things. Yeah, just, just to, using the way the, the way the news media uses the terms in the vernacular to make this clear. Uh, if in fact we don't want settlement building to be linked to the peace process, then we shouldn't be linking "quote unquote" settlement building 
to, you know, to punishments regarding, uh, you know, acts or non-acts on the other side, right? Is that essentially what you're saying? If we if we try, to... I think something that has to be considered very carefully. And it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jnn.org. It's a Friday, believe it or not. Weekly update, Malcolm Honeline with us on this Friday morning broadcast. Once the U.S. did what it did, uh, it was really easy for the EU and maybe even others, you could tell us, uh, to follow suit, right? It was nothing for them at that point once the U.S. had committed, correct? Well, they, they were, I don't think they were waiting to hear it. Yeah, understood, but it makes it, but it makes yes, it even easier. Right. Had the, I think, the United States held back, they may have uh, taken a more moderate position. Right. But the idea that business as usual can go on is a mistake, and it, and it, you know, it's not, it's not just in this regard. It's in regard to so many of the issues. When you see what um, Khamenei said at the rally for the 25th anniversary, I think of the death of his predecessor, predecessor Khamenei, and you know, we talk about being able to work with them, and here they come out with this blast against the United States with signs about the destruction of, of the U.S. His speech is a complete denunciation, I'm sure Israel as well, but uh, says that the United States has given up the military option. And the U.S., and the, they took the speech at, um, at West Point and other things as, uh, as substantiating uh, that, that position. So, you know, we always have to think about how does the other side hear or think of what we do. And, and that can be whether it's the most innocent act and sometimes necessary, or, you know, just things that are done without considering the full consequences of, of the action. And, and we're seeing all these things growing. What, what I mentioned about the Hezbollah in Syria is, to me, a very serious new front. It's a new, a new issue that will confront Israel, but also the U.S., the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, because they say this is now Iran's new front. And if you remember, several years ago, I reported that the Iranians talk about their new defensive line being the Golan Heights. And then nothing happened. Everybody let it slip away. And all of a sudden, there's this announcement that Hezbollah now will not just operate out of Lebanon. And he said, you know, the Zionists were always concerned about threats from the Lebanese border. Now she'll prepare herself for a new situation on the Golan. And there was a statement made uh, last month, again, not getting any attention, that uh, by... Um, uh, his name is uh, Eskandari. He's the senior commander of the Iran Revolutionary Guards. That they had trained 42 battalions and 138 brigades to fight in Syria. He said, "This is our war against the United States. It's on Syrian soil." And he says now that they have 130,000 Basiji, uh, these paramilitary terror terrorists, have been trained and are waiting to enter Syria. Now, all of our efforts to try and counter it and to, to to get some stability or to support the other side, which is certainly in question about, you know, where the aid that we go to, that every time we send arms, the West sends arms, it ends up in the hands of the worst guys. Right. Here you have a whole new front emerging out of this. So Iran claims victory in Assad's victory. That was certainly in their interest uh, that he win, but even if he didn't, they would not have in, uh, diminished their presence there because they have made this, they have staked their ground there. And the West, just thinks about how can we pour more money in. I'm not against it. I think we wish we had done more constructive things earlier on. Right. But it, 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 to me, this is a, a whole new front that we, we, we almost don't 
hear any concern about, just as if you remember for how many, for two years we talked about the foreign fighters in Syria who are going to come back and terrorize the United States, Europe, others, because they carry passports from those countries. Now all of a sudden the European Union, the G7 meeting, this week starts taking up how we, they could coordinate and deal with this, uh, this new threat, uh, fundamental threat to the security of people in, in the West, in Europe, in the United States, Canada, many other countries. Um, in some ways, the Hezbollah in Syria, just speaking militarily for a moment, Hezbollah in Syria um, is not, how do I put this? The Lebanese border, the entire Lebanese border with Israel, and we've seen this in the past, is a is a potential area, God forbid, for a strike against Israel. So now militarily, the presence in Syria simply expands the potential of a strike against Israel. It, it utilizes the uh, the Golan Heights area the same way that the northern border, you know, from Lebanon was being utilized. Yes, and and remember that the, the Syrian army now it does not represent a real threat because they are so. Um, so uh, uh, involved in their internal things, they've been demoralized, they've been depleted. So the Syrian army doesn't really represent a threat. It's the presence of all these terrorist groups which have increasingly moved in, including al-Qaeda, into uh, adjacent areas to the Golan and into the Golan in some cases. Uh, this poses a threat to Jordan, which has been screaming and yelling of late about this as well, and, uh, of course, to Israel. They have been careful, except for straight uh, mortar shells and bullets and maybe one or two deliberate attempts that we saw recently when they fired from Lebanon and Israel fired back. Um, some stray shells hit Israel yesterday, but they didn't because it was clear that it wasn't, it wasn't meant to hit Israel. Um, but they have, they've been building up some presence that Israel has reported and warned about and has taken some limited actions in response to, but this would be a, a major escalation of that danger Exactly as you said. Uh, a couple of things outside of Israel we wanted to ask you about. Uh, first of all, uh, the debate about whether this gunman in Brussels acted alone or not. What are your feelings uh, in terms of what's been uh, uncovered so far in that case? Well, we haven't had access to any of the files or reports other than what the, has been made public. Uh, but even if he acted alone, he wasn't trained alone. He... he, he looks clearly like he was in Syria and that this would be just uh, the vanguard of what we might see happening over and over again. There were other arrests that were made because somebody uh, likely knew about it or aided and abetted him. Well, can there be lone wolves? There can be. But we always find out that there was some influence, somebody who, who was involved who, or some connection, whether it's the training in prison or that were, and now they're, they're talking about you know, dealing with the problem that the French prisons and German prisons and others have become breeding grounds for Islamic uh, extremism because these young Muslims that who may get arrested for anything and are put in jail are then radicalized while they're there by an imam, by a, by a people, a group of uh, activists. And it's true in our own prison system, in the American prison system. And still not enough is being done here. No question about that. And everybody wants to know what you think of the uh, Bergdahl prisoner exchange, uh, the great debate about whether this exchange should have taken place. What are your observations about it? Well, the one thing I really object to is that the rush to say, well, Israel does it. How come whatever else Israel does, we don't hear that being cited as a model for, for what the United States should do or does? 
And the fact that uh, today in the Times they have a write-up and people saying, well, Israel has engaged in, in uh, things. Every situation is different. And I understand the humanitarian side. I understand if you see the film, uh, even Mark Kirk and other Republican senators who came away after seeing the film, and supposedly there was a death, death threat against uh, him about why the United States would move. But releasing five terrorists and uh, the past history of countries, and especially a country like Qatar, uh, to be trusted with this is certainly questionable. Do you think that the president's going to be able to uh, adhere to this timetable in terms of ending the presence in Afghanistan? He may be able to. The question is, at what price? That's what people are debating and and, and seeing that the uh, Taliban still exist and that uh, they could they could come back in greater force once the U.S. presence is completely removed. Uh, you have to hear what the what the people there say. Uh, their concerns about what the aftermath will be. And who becomes the or who are at this point? the key countries in terms of trying to keep the Taliban at bay in that area? Well, once we're out, there won't be anybody. I mean, there's no force. And remember, Iran was involved. Others are involved. This is a, a big change for, for, for the region itself, and we will have to see how it plays out. Certainly the model of, our, of Iraq is not a very encouraging one, where we see you know, Iran's influence having been expanded and now becoming a staging ground for the ISIS and other groups other terrorist organizations operating in Syria, and they will be operating in Iraq. So you would say the U.S. can leave these areas, but uh, shortly after they'll be back. I don't know if they'll be back, but I, the U.S. may leave, but they won't leave the U.S. alone. And the, the um, pattern that we've seen in the past would support the, those concerns. Wow. Uh, you mentioned last week about Egypt because you had not touched on uh, what was going on in Egypt regarding the elections, etc. Could you update us on that? I was disappointed. I only got 97% of the vote. And, uh, <laughs> it was less than uh, many had thought. Less than anticipated. It was about 47%. It was a little over 50 in 2012. So people said that, you know, there would, the people wouldn't come out. And, uh, I mean, we'll have to see how this, what this really means, how he plays it out. Um, but he's, he's the first uh, Egyptian president not that participated in a war with Israel. And he he uh, he moved to to repair some of the problems in certainly in uh, in Gaza, and he's been very strong in trying to get rid of the of the terrorist organizations operating out of there. And he's going to have to keep a close grip on the Gaza Strip, and he took out most of the tunnels. I mean, he they took definitive action, and he says he will act against the Muslim Brotherhood within Egypt. Uh, the question is, can he then move to balance it and to move the economy forward and the um, and how the relationship with the United States will develop? And the relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, are they con- what are they considered now in Egypt? Well, he has said that uh, when he becomes president, there will be no more Muslim Brotherhood. I don't think that that's possible, but I do think he will clamp down on them. And I read this story about the uh, a corporation that was selling uh, aircraft parts to Iran. Um, are, are these things taken seriously, Malcolm, where at this point, if, if someone is doing business at this level with Iran, they are going to be um, uh, sanctioned, they're going to be uh, punished um, by the United States? Well, they have, and here the, they deserve credit for the administration in the U.S. for, for the leadership in this area um, in going after companies. There are some who say, you know, that uh, some officials... Uh, have allowed things, the marginal activities or activities that uh, they w- uh, like this to go on, um, 
aircraft parts were allowed to be sold right. and and car parts under the new deal with the with the Iranians under the understanding because when we less, uh, loosened some of the sanctions those two areas were permitted uh, but the the we know that there are many others who have been involved in financing or laundering or other activities using guises where they change the name of ships and they do other things um, but Iran's economy is certainly in deep trouble, and I think any loosening now before we have a deal would be a huge mistake, that this is the real leverage we have on them, and especially if they don't believe that the military option is a real one. And they continue to engage in uh, all this outrageous activities, the attacks on the United States, the verbal attacks, of the development, their activities in Iran, their activities around the world in supporting terrorism, the foreign minister turned down an invitation to visit uh, Saudi Arabia, which was remarkable in the first place that Saudi Arabia would even invite him. Uh, the, the United States has a lot of decisions uh, to make about uh, the next steps in, in regard to the P5 plus 1. They're going to meet on June 16th. But one of the things you don't hear is about the massive violations of human rights, that executions in Iran hit uh, record-breaking levels in 2014. Now it's more than two people are being killed every day. There have been 320 executions in the first five months. Now, this remember, this is under Rouhani, under the more moderate regime. This is not Ahmadinejad. And all the portrayals of this regime as being, you know, more, more moderate, this is the real message. Wow. And in all this time, now that we're reflecting back on Normandy and the... Uh you know, th those who were uh, instrumental in uh, in fighting for freedom in this world at a very crucial time in history. I'm sure those images are even more poignant when you think about what the world might have to do if they just sit back and let some of these madmen... Uh, learn the lessons from all the sacrifices made then about it, what were the mistakes that were made in the, in, in the run-up to World War II. But there is a positive note. Australia, yeah. which I meant to mention earlier, dropped the term occupied now in reference to East Jerusalem, to the building in East Jerusalem. Right. They said that this is a term that is derogatory or pejorative, I think, or carries pejorative implications and not appropriate or useful. Let's hope others would do the same. <laughs> I guess a small victory, huh? You, hey, you, look, the, um, <laughs> the Modern Language Association, despite most of the predictions, did not pass the resolution you know, calling for the boycott of Israel. It's actually more complicated than that, but... It, it is essentially an anti-Israel resolution, and only 6.5% of the 24,000 active members actually voted and uh, 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 voted for the resolution, and 4.5% voted against it. Um, you need 10% for a resolution to pass. Right. So both sides can claim, claim a victory, you know, moral victories, etc., but the fact is that it did not pass, and that is a very important statement. They will certainly try it again, but at least that was an important step. And it? even the Rolling Stones didn't cave into the boycott and, calls. And despite Pink Floyd and others' yeah. uh, pressure to do so, so anybody who contemplates buying a record or, or <laughs> downloading a song from Pink Floyd, think again. But look, in the last two weeks, you had Justin Timberlake with 45,000 people, the Rolling Stones with 50,000 uh, people coming there, performing, adding performance, not succumbing, even though they were criticized uh, for it. So it's very important that those who tweet, tweet or Twitter or Facebook or whatever send positive messages to these guys. 
Malcolm, you have to start planning your trips around the concert schedule in the Holy Land. I'll tell you that much. Finally, uh, we started with this, of course, the American uh, response uh, to the brand new PA government and some of the shock that has been felt. What about Israel's neighbors that aren't Syria and Iran? I would assume that Syria and Iran are very happy with this brand new PA government and the fact that the U.S. is ready to deal with them. But what about Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Egypt? How would you evaluate the way they look at the U.S. reaction to the new PA government? I think to a large degree they see it as Iran uh, getting gaining a greater foothold, that they, they have all cut off Hamas, with the exception of Qatar, and Qatar now says that they will step in and help offset some of the immediate costs from the people who have been unemployed by from the Hamas government. But aside from Qatar, they all have isolated and, and worked against it, and now they see uh, Hamas being given a new lifeline. Certainly for Jordan, which is in a very precarious position, this is not a good thing. This is a, a further exacerbation of the problems that they have, both from the influx of a uh, million and a half refugees from Syria, the internal situation with a population that is uh, more than two-thirds Palestinian, etc., and the activities of the Muslim Brotherhood there. This the idea that Hamas gains, gains a foothold again in the West Bank and can operate easily into Jordan as well and become an influence is certainly something that they uh, have to look at with trepidation. Yeah. And for all of us armchair uh, secretaries of state who spend Shvu is saying how ironic Bergdahl is free and Pollard is not, do you see any comparison in the two situations? No, I don't see any uh, comparison. And, and I think that we, we lose when we uh, complicate his uh, status more. I mean, it's just, I thought about him over Yontav. I mean, that this is uh, I mean, it's such an outrage, and people have asked over and over again now what will be the case. And frankly, we, we just don't know what the uh, you know the fact that he was part or his name had come up in in the uh, in the negotiations whether that doesn't further exacerbate the, his status next year. He's up for parole, and that's really the critical, very critical. Uh, Malcolm, one week from today, we will reconvene. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and thanks for joining us in this short week. Shabbat shalom, my pleasure. There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Even in a crazy setup week like this, plenty to talk about regarding what's happening in this unbelievable world of ours. This time each and every Friday, every Erev Shabbos, with great pleasure, we present... Rabbi Benjamin Uden, spiritual leader of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey, to address the entire listening audience concerning the Torah portion of the week. Good morning, Rabbi Uden. Good morning, Nachum. Good Erev Shabbos, everybody. Good Isru Chag. Today is the day after Yom Tov. And wow, we try to, as the term itself actually means, bind ourselves to the Yom Tov. Treat yourself to some special food today, but we'll try to return to Israel Chag at the end. Tomorrow we have the privilege of reading Parshas Baaloscha. Baaloscha, according to the Chinuch, contains five mitzvos, three positive mitzvos, and two prohibitions. It's a challenging parsha in the sense that. The parsha, if I may, comparing it to a graph, begins on a significant upswing whereby we are literally on our way to Eretz Yisrael. 
And as Moshe says to his father-in-law, No sim anachnu. We are literally traveling. Join us. One could feel the excitement. And then, unfortunately, wow, we have the two inverted nuns. We have the two psukim, which the Talmud in Shabbos teaches us. This is really not its place. It belongs as the letter nun is in Gematria 50. It belongs 50 paragraphs earlier in Parshas Bamidbar, speaking about Vahibin Soa Oron, literally, when the Oron, when the Holy Ark traveled. The Talmud tells us it is put over here because it is to be a buffer between Puranus and Puranus, between the different transgressions that the Jewish people unfortunately committed at that time. After this, unfortunately, downhill, until next week, we have the sin of the Maraglim. I'd like to focus, however, on the beginning of the parsha, which speaks of the lighting of the menorah. Now, the menorah was lit in the Mikdash every day by the Kohen, and even though the lighting of the menorah technically could be lit by a czar, by a non-Kohen, if the menorah was brought outside the Heichel or a very long uh, match was extended from outside to where the menorah was, it was literally the Hatava, the preparation of the lamps, which had to be done by the Kohen, but we certainly are starting with the lighting of the menorah. And the obvious question that the Medrash asks is, wait a second, we are taught by David HaMelech in Tilim, chapter 18, Pasuk 29, Ki literally, David says, you Hashem, it is you who will light my lamp. Hashem Elokai Yagia Choshki. Hashem, my God, illuminates my darkness. So if He is literally the one that lights up our life and He illuminates us in every which way, then what is going on here that we in turn are to light a menorah for Him in the Beis HaMikdash? The Medrash, at the beginning of Baaloscha, Medrash Rabbah, suggests an interesting response to this, and does so via a parable. What the Mahadova Domer, to what may it be compared to a Pikeach Visuma, to two individuals who are traveling together, one with sight and the other one who's blind. They were Mahalchin Baderech traveling, so the throughout the journey, understandably, the Pikeach, the one with sight, was assisting, guiding the blind traveler with him. Kishenikones, Habayis, when they came to the city, then the gentleman with sight said to the blind man that when we come into the house, I want you, 
I want you to turn the light on in the house for me, for Ho'er Li. And please illuminate the house for me. To which the Summa, the blind one, somewhat startled and surprised, said, Wait a second. I understand that you were the one who was guiding me all along. Now you're telling me to light for you. And so the answer that the pikeach, the individual with sight gives, is most incisive. And what does he say? He said, Shalo tehei tova. In other words, I don't want you to be able and only to be on the receiving end. I want you to be able to reciprocate. That just as I did for you, I want you to be able to return and do for me. And similarly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu explains the Medrash. He is the Pikeach. We, the Jewish people, are the Summa. He guides us, he illuminates us, but to give us some dignity, he gives us the opportunity to light the menorah. Now this, my friends, is a very important philosophic concept. It is a concept which is found and literally reiterated on several occasions by the Ramchal in his Das Tvunos, and there he says the following, Why is it that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created this world? For what purpose? And the answer that he gives, quoting the Kabbalists, is Derech HaTov Lehitiv. The nature of the capital G, Good One, God, is to extend goodness, to give. Because God overflows with goodness, He created this world to extend goodness and kindness to His creatures. However, if man were to receive all of God's beneficence and kindness on a silver platter, this would be what our rabbis call Nama de Kisufa. Literally, it would be bread of embarrassment and bread of shame. Because after a while, one feels not simply inadequate, but one feels a sense of shame that they are only on the receiving end and not on the giving end. And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, gives us mitzvos for two reasons. Number one, the tzaref es habrios, literally the nature of mitzvos purifies man. It shapes his character. We become better people by our observance of mitzvos. But in addition, and this is a favorite theme of the Sefer Achinuch, who with every mitzvah tries to give you the 
piece called Meshar Sheha Mitzvah, at the root of the mitzvah, and very often he tells you that at the root of a particular mitzvah is that God gives us the opportunity to do something for him, what appears as if it's for him, but really is for us, enabling him to then return the favor and then bestow his kindness on us. This is a very important concept. It's a concept which says, number one, Gomeil chasodim tovim. The God that we say in every Shmona Esrei in the first bracha, that He is the practitioner and extends kindness, but it's not just kindness, it's chasodim tovim, in that He gives man the dignity of allowing man, listen carefully, to actually feel that he is doing something in the process in order to earn that which Hashem is giving him. And in reality, if you think about it, and this is a very interesting thought suggested by the late Reb Shlomo Harkabi, who was the mashkiach of the yeshiva in Grodna prior to the war, he suggests, wow, take a look. Man could abuse this concept by thinking it is really him. It's really kolchi v'otsem yodi. But Hashem puts man in this situation and he runs the risk all so that man should have his dignity. Recognizing that it all comes from God, but man has the dignity that he participates in the process. And so, it's not just a very powerful philosophical idea which emerges from the beginning of Parshas Baha'aloscha. And in fact, why does the Torah use the term Baha'aloscha as Hadneros and not Baha'adlacha when you are Madlik? Because this is an elevation for the man. This is an elevation in the sense that it gives man his dignity. And I really believe that there's a lot of very practical lessons that emerge from this. You invite somebody for Shabbos, they're going to call you tomorrow and say, tell me, when are you making Shabbos? Are you making Shabbos early with Plaga Mincha, or are you making Shabbos Bizman? And you'll tell them when you're making Shabbos. And they're going to ask you then, tell me, can I bring something for Shabbos? And thank God you don't need anything. But you're going to say to them, oh yes, please bring a bottle or two of soda. It's not the soda It's the idea that giving them the opportunity to participate, that they are not just on the, quote, receiving it as guests, but they are also participating, and it gives them a sense of dignity. And this is clearly something which somebody is about to tell you a Dvar Torah. And you've heard this Dvar Torah before. You have two options. As they are getting into it, you can say, oh, I heard that already, and give the punchline, or no, allow them to literally extend it, treat them as if you haven't heard it before, and thank them, because you're giving them the opportunity to share this with you, is giving them a great deal of dignity. 
as we see from the beginning of the parsha. And indeed, this is what we say in the first bracha of Yotzer Or Uvorei Choshech, Oseh Shalom Uvorei the first bracha of Kriyashma, Tov Yotzar, He, God who is good. He, Yotzar, He created the luminaries, He created nature. Why? Kvod Lishmo, that we in turn will be able to give honor to God's name. And I really believe that this is Isru Chag. This is the day after Shavuos. He gave us such a beautiful Yom Tov. He commanded us in this Torah that we are to observe the Yom Tov of Shavuos. And by our observing Isru Chag, this is an opportunity for us to, quote, give back. This is to extend the relationship. And therefore... What a powerful, beautiful lesson this is from the menorah. Hashem truly lights up our life, but in addition gives us the dignity and kavod that we are able to please God, reciprocate and return bounty to Him. Shabbat Shalom to all. Amen.
It's a Friday morning broadcast on this very unusual week. <laughs> Hope your yontif was uh, spectacular. Welcome to an Isruchag edition of JM and the AM. It's Erev Shabbos, Parshas Baloscha with candle lighting at 8.04 on this Erev Shabbos. Many synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are. 8.04, the official candle lighting time uh, here on, a, uh, on an Erev Shabbos. Um, well, those of you who, and we've spoken about this before, the incredible effort of Nofe Yisrael and Ramat Givat Zev. It is a, uh, a neighborhood they've established in Israel that is really meant for the, uh, for the, uh, American community. And uh, this coming Sunday, starting at 10 a.m. at Eish Kodesh in Woodmere, New York, they're going to have a huge sales event where they're going to be able to, uh, where you'll be able to check out the Ramat Givadzev neighborhood from 6,000 miles away and to see what they have to offer in this uh, unique, brand-new area uh, in Yerushalayim. Rabbi um, Yoni Fisher is with us. He's a Manahel and a Rebbe at Yeshiva Shar Yashuv in um, Farakaway. And uh, he is the person that is uh, responsible for the um, the schools and, in general, the spiritual institutions that are going to be set up in Ramat Givat Zev, Israel. Rabbi Yoni Fisher, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you so much. So I guess this means you're heading to the Holy Land in the very near future. Yes. Bezrat Hashem and Mir We're making Aliyah after the summer. What is unique? Why do we keep hearing about Ramat Givat Zev? Where is it? What's unique about it? Why is it have such appeal uh, to the uh, American Jewish community? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Nachum. I, I think, uh, first of all, it's very close to Yerushalayim, which uh, is uh, obviously something that everybody wants to be as close to Yerushalayim if you can't be in Yerushalayim. Right. It also has the fact that it's a little bit out of Yerushalayim, so it gives that suburb, suburbia feel. Um, and I think what's really unique is uh, the fact that it's going to be a, a community that is, um, I would say, uh, a premier community in Gashmias and Ruchnias. We're, we're, Baruch Hashem, we have a wonderful team at Nofe Yisrael who are all committed to creating a community that is really 
something that, that anyone who's going to come, especially Americans who come, are going to feel comfortable. Um, and I, I, I think that, uh, especially now, Baruch Hashem, it's a, it's a wonderful time now. We just got the permits. We're starting to build. So... Uh, very exciting for all of us. Well, Rayoni Fisher is with us uh, live via telephone. I will tell you, I was at one of the um, uh, Ramat Givadzev events, and it is it is pretty impressive. And as you just indicated, maybe a little subtly, uh, we Americans have some uh, gashmius concerns. We, right. we may be a little different than some of the native Israelis. And they're going beyond the call of duty to make sure that these uh, uh, brand-new apartments and uh, facilities are as comfortable as possible. Correct. And I, I just want to point out that's very important, is that at the end of the day, um, as much as the Gashmias and the um, comfort that we have in America, nobody is comfortable without knowing that their children and their families are not going to be able to have the proper klitas, they call it, and to be able to integrate into Israel. Oh, you know, I think it's a dream that we all have to be in Eretz Yisrael. I think every Jew has that, and every Jew wants to be in Eretz Yisrael. I think the challenge, number one, is change for anybody. But if we're able to provide a, a physical comfort, which, of course, we all need, but then deeper than that, we're able to provide chinuch, and we're able to provide number one and, and, and first class when it comes to chinuch, and for people to feel that my children can be happy, if not happier than they are in the States, there is no reason why anybody would not come to buy in Ramat Givadzev and be part of this incredible community that, that we're so excited about. When do the people at Nofe Israel really think that people will be able to move in? Like, what type of timetable are they talking yeah, about? Yeah, so I'm not sure the exact details. I know they're starting to build, so that could take, a, you know, a few years. I don't know the exact date, but, um, you know, when you're dealing with Eretz Israel and you're dealing with Lamala Minateva, you're dealing with Siata Deshmaya. You know, we could uh, it could be sooner than we think. Yeah, who knows? Uh, Rabbi, exactly. Rabbi Yoni Fisher is with us now. It's your responsibility, if I have this correct, to yeah. to literally work on the spiritual institutions of the neighborhood. In other words, they're not right. ju- they're not just letting these things develop and right. see what happens once people get there. Uh, correct. They're literally putting in your hands the educational goals of the community. Right. Well, it's interesting, Nachum. I think that's part of the fact that. I'm going to be making Aliyah with my family. Bleinhar, we have uh, six children and a lot of children who are going to be experiencing the Chinuch. Um, and that's something that I'm going to be, of course, it's my own children, so I'm going to be extra focused on the Chinuch and what works, what doesn't work, and meeting with, you know, hundreds of Menalim and trying to get clear to set up, you know, the, the, the proper... Uh, but they say for and uh, for the girls, for the boys, for for the for the entire community that that you know that everybody feels comfortable and everyone feels that they're getting. You know, I whenever I speak to my wife about this, I say very you know chinuch transcends whether you're American, whether you're Israeli. It's it's the same. Chanoch lenar al pidarko, and us focusing on every family and every child, and especially young. A lot of young people are are beginning to. Look into this community because it, it, there's a promising future over here in Ramat Givatzev. Yeah, the uh, and the point being, of course, that uh, no matter what stage it'll be at, it'll be much further along than if people would just let this happen once they get there. I mean, this is happening exactly. in, uh, happening in advance, which is obviously a very big uh, advantage. Rabbi Yoni Fisher is with us this coming Sunday. The massive event from Nofei Yisrael and Ramat Givatzev is going to be happening at Ash Kodesh eight ninety four. Woodmere Place in Woodmere. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning, goes all the way until 10 o'clock at night. All the information about the apartments and the building and the uh, offerings 
and the different uh, types of levels that people could purchase at in terms of this brand-new neighborhood right outside of Jerusalem is all going to be available to you at that event. It's happening this Sunday starting at 10 o'clock, going all the way until 10 p.m. at Aish Kodesh on Woodmere Place in Woodmere, New York, a unique opportunity to really get in on the ground floor, as we say, of a brand-new neighborhood in Israel. The phone number for information is area code 718-475-5668. That's 718-475-5668 for information. And you can check out Ramat Givadzev uh, under the uh, umbrella of Nofei Israel this coming Sunday at Eish Kodesh in Woodmere. I assume that everything I just described, right, every detail from the Ruchnius and the Gashmius will be on display on Sunday. Yes, correct. People don't have to worry about that. Every, right. Everything that you could check out from 6,000 miles away will be there. Right. I will be there, Amir Tashem, and, you know, a whole team to answer any questions that anyone has. All right, you're by Yoni Fisher. Good luck. Mazal tov on your aliyah. Thank you. I hope I mean, it's I hope you. it's with great success and hey if you have a hand in building a great Jewish neighborhood in Israel call like a vote to you enjoy this coming Sunday. Amen. Thank you so much. Rabbi Yoni Fisher, Nofei Israel event uh, will concentrate on Ramat Givat Zev uh, this coming Sunday at uh, Eish Kodesh in Woodmere. It's at 894 Woodmere Place from 10 until 10. The information line for any of this about Ramat Givat Zev is 718-475-5668 that's 718 718- Four seven five five six six eight. Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. It's JM in the AM. Shabbos, tell me, come alive. 
Gershon Baroba. Nice selection. Ishruchag, Erev Shabbos, Parshas Baloscha with candle lighting at 8.04. A lot of synagogues begin earlier. Make sure you know when things start where you are, please. Um, Mazel Tov going out to Tzipi and Shayadov Schreiber of Far Rockaway celebrating their eighth wedding anniversary. Listeners Sina and Ira down in Florida write, we're sorry we weren't able to wish you a Mazlov in person, but we did have a Lachaim or two and some cheesecake in your honor. <laughs> Maybe Zoha to share many more years 
together in good health with much nachas from your beautiful family. Comes from Ima and Abba. You know who they are. Ira and Sina down in uh, Florida. I thank them for participating in this morning show. Very few mornings go by without them participating. <laughs> Want to wish a mazel tov to the Weichner and Levy families. Jordana Weichner and Avi Levy getting married this coming Sunday. We're getting set for the big celebration. Mazel tov to the Weichner and Levy families from all of us here at JM and the AM. This coming Sunday, our friends at the Sephardic Home in Brooklyn, New York, starting at 6 p.m., have invited their honored guests from Israel, including senators, consulate ministers from Morocco and Israel, president of the World Federation of Moroccan Jury, and board members of the Sephardic Home. This Sunday at 6 p.m., they are having a special get-together for the World Federation of Moroccan Jury in celebration of unity of friends. A great day of Moroccan jury happening at the Sephardic Center in honor of Avraham Amar. And I take this opportunity to wish a mazal tov to uh, Mr. Michael New and to everybody who is participating in that big celebration this weekend. Monday, we are back starting at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us, everybody. Another amazing edition of JM in the AM to start your week. If you missed any of our weekly update, we did have it earlier. Weekly update with Malcolm Honline. We had it on. Archive will be available shortly after this radio program ends. Go to jmtheam.org. Make sure you have the brand new NSN app. It's another amazing way to tune in and catch what you may have missed on this great radio program. Time to take a Shabbos with Journeys at JM in the AM.
Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. And that wraps up another amazing week for us here at JMNAM. A little bit of a short week, but hey, amazing Nonetheless, great programming all day long on our stream at jmnam.org. Make sure to be tuned in. Monday morning we are back. We'll start at 6 a.m. Make sure to be tuned in and join us. Don't forget, Matis has JM Sunday, 7 a.m. Eastern time on our stream at jmnam.org. An amazing way to pick up your week, actually to start your week, uh, once um, Sunday morning arrives. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Great weekend. Till Monday, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, trust the future.